As I continue my journey towards wealth, one of the terms which I feel continues to crop up time and time again during my weekly learnings and research is Web3, this supposedly next evolution of the internet. We've got the crypto space, the metaverse, more on that later, NFTs, they all feel linked to this term, Web3. So it got me thinking, what is Web3? Well, actually, what is Web1 and Web2? So this week, on behalf of the listeners of the Wealth Journal podcast, I've swallowed the red pill and entered the matrix to learn all about what Web 1, 2, and 3 really is. And of course, it goes without saying, anything in the Wealth Journal this week is not financial advice. I don't make any recommendations on stock picks, crypto projects, or any other form of recommendations. All I recommend is that you learn. The Wealth Journal is here for educational and entertainment purposes. So please enjoy. And with that out of the way, let's get cracking. Hello and welcome to episode... 12 of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. Thank you. Thank you for listening and joining me on the podcast today. So Web3, this is the first point in my Wealth Journal this week. And really for me, trying to learn a little bit more about Web3 does feel, I guess, a little bit daunting in some ways. It's quite a in-depth topic and it's one that this week I've actually spent probably more time researching this particular episode of the podcast than any of the other ones previous because it's still such a new space there's a lot of new information coming out on a daily weekly basis Uh, so I've really invested quite a little bit of time into this episode just to try and for my own benefit understand a little bit more about what's going on and what really web web 3 3 is and the reason for that is because we are going through a bit of a shift really we're we're moving into this web 3 era in the same way that we we moved into the internet area uh area (laughs) era back in the two, uh, early 2000s and of course there were winners and lo- losers there were huge companies there were successful entrepreneurs that were born through the internet age so as we transition into this next internet age no doubt there will also be winners and losers too there will be investment opportunities and that's why I wanted to educate myself a little bit more on what web3 is what it means and how I could potentially invest in web3 now, I don't know who the winners and losers will be, but I think through through trying to educate myself, then maybe I can I can make a few potential picks along along the way. So the first point is, of course, Web3. And just to jump straight in, it's probably, I guess, the best place to start is looking at Web1. So that first era of the internet, which began around about the 1980s up till the early 2000s. And the internet back then was built on what they call open protocols. The internet was essentially controlled by the internet community. Nobody owns the internet. And it meant that individuals and organizations could grow their internet presence knowing the rules of the game wouldn't change later on. And this was the basic era of the internet with basic web pages that were pretty much read-only. So you could essentially put a news article on there, a newspaper, for example. We had basic search engines. We used dial-up and all that shit, <laughs> AOL. Um, but it was re- it was really slow, and you couldn't really do a huge amount. 
But during this era of the internet, we saw the emergence of the likes of Google, Amazon, and Facebook towards the end phase of Web 1. And then we then started to move into Web 2, which I guess was from the mid-2000s to to pretty much where we are now. And we've seen the emergence of these large for-profit tech companies, most notably the likes of Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. You know, remember Amazon, the the book-selling platform in in Web 1 and what they are now. The early days of Google, people used to joke and journalists used to use the term that Google's biggest search is for a business model. And they used to always think, like, how's Facebook going to make money? In the early days, nobody could really understand how these tech firms were going to make money. But as Web2 evolved, they certainly managed to do that. Because what they did was that they built software and services that quickly outpaced the previous aging protocols of Web1. We then had the growth of smartphones, Wi-Fi, 3G, 4G, and that drove the bulk of, of the internet towards mobile apps. Users migrated from the open web services on Web1 to these incredibly sophisticated but centralized services owned by the mighty few companies. And even now, when you try to use some of the open web services that are available, you have to do so via Google, Apple, Facebook, or Amazon services. You know, for example, it might be you have to go via Apple's App Store or Google's Chrome browsers. They've got a real handle on the internet. And this has become somewhat of a problem because some might argue that now all the power is firmly in the hands of a few large companies. And although over the last decade or so we've seen massive success stories and entrepreneurs that have used Web2 to their advantage, but there's also an argument that this centralization of the internet has now got to a bit of a tipping point, and rather than encouraging innovation, it's actually started to stifle it. So let's take an example. Take Apple's App Store. If you come up with a really cool app that might solve huge problems for for people, for users, but yet it doesn't fit within Apple's app policies then it's it's not going to get on the platform and also in order to get it on the platform where most people will download it they'll take a big cut another example is that you might have become a really successful youtuber or creator and built an audience of millions and yet suddenly youtube changed their algorithm and now your audience no longer gets served all your content You might have built a business through Facebook and Facebook groups or or even Instagram and have a huge following. And yet your latest posts only reach a fraction of your audience unless you pay Facebook, Meta or whoever money to boost them and counter these algorithmic biases that they can put in at any moment. So as an entrepreneur or a creator, you could argue that these big players are making the internet less interesting They dictate the rules of the game and they decide who has a voice and even to the point where they decide who gets platformed or deplatformed. So enter Web3, this third era of the internet. Now Web3 was born from the idea of community-governed decentralized networks, essentially taking the ideas first introduced in, in Bitcoin and developed further in Ethereum. I bet you knew crypto was going to come in at some point. Um... But it's a web in which we could all play a role in and that no one entity has a final say in how it should or shouldn't work in the same way that Bitcoin isn't controlled by a single entity but a network of of the community from from Bitcoin. I mentioned last week when when 
sort of research in Ethereum, that if you was to build or develop an app on Ethereum, for example, or a DAP, a decentralized application, for those who can remember that, once it's built, you, the creator, effectively then hand over the control. It's, it's been built, it's been created, it's decentralized. So crypto and crypto networks have taught us that the best two features of the previous web versions can be combined, which is community governance and decentralization. An example of community governance in Web3 could be, for example, a social network which isn't run by Mark Zuckerberg, but it's run by the creators or members of the network. Everyone then has a stake in the game and is rewarded for its growth through tokenization. So let's say I create a social network called JTube, for example. Um, <laughs> and no, it's not a porn site. And I also create a JTube currency. So users can upload onto JTube. Uh, I've completely ruined it for myself there, haven't I? <laughs> um, but I'll carry on with it. Let's carry on. So users can upload videos or NFTs or artwork onto JTube and people can, can watch them. I might pay creators JTube uh, coins or tokens or currency that I've created to, to sort of interact with the platform. And I'll pay them to upload their content. So there's, there's a reward for creators to engage with the network. And then me and the other JTube coin holders can all vote to decide how we, how we manage JTube in the future. We might vote to allow advertisers to place ads on the platform. But JTube, although created by me, unlike in Web2, I no longer, I don't own JTube. It's, it's decentralized. So when users log in to watch content and consume ads, instead of me, the founder of JTube or JTube shareholders raking in all the ad revenue, it goes to the users. It goes to the users for sharing their data. So they get paid in JTube coins to, to view the ad, ads on the, on the platform. And then also the original content creators may also get a slice of the ad spend in the form of their royalties. This is the reverse, almost, of how Web2 operates with Facebook or YouTube. You go onto Facebook or YouTube as a user, they're effectively selling your data to the advertisers. And then Facebook or whoever owns Facebook, its shareholders, get rich. And you, as the user of Facebook, get nothing, nor does the content creator. Okay, you get free use of a platform, but really, um, is it free? So this is interesting because through tokenization, I guess what crypto has allowed, i.e. these JTube coins, the holders of the coins can then govern the platform and vote on how JTube is run. So imagine that, a social network run by the members of the network, the community of members voting only on upgrades that make their experience better. And holders of JTube coins will, will be incentivized themselves to actually help the JTube platform grow and increase in value because as their coins go up in value, they, they benefit. The tokens can go even further. So let's say, and we'll, we'll stick on the theme of me, uh, we'll call it, we'll say the Wealth Journal. So, so the Wealth Journal, for example, I released um, my own token for the Wealth Journal podcast and give it away to my, to my listeners. And let's say I give it away to, let's say I have a newsletter and give it away to my newsletter subscribers. So they get early access to the first Wealth Journal uh, token or currency. The more successful the Wealth Journal gets, the more that these tokens could potentially rise in value. Let's say these tokens can be used to, um, to exchange it for uh, exclusive content, access to Wealth Journal merchandise, um, you could 
use them to to trade for one-on-one calls with the host of the wealth journal podcast if you if you're lucky so the token themselves could actually could be could be utilized could have some form of utility but also could move up in up and down in value based on on supply and demand so the more popular the podcast gets the the higher value that the tokens will become so as a listener you will be incentivized to help grow the Wealth Journal podcast because you've got a stake in the game as well. So it's quite interesting for creators, this sense of of decentralized platforms and tokenization to actually almost, you know, you could you could pass the podcast now onto friends and family, which is great. And hopefully you are doing that. But if there was a token involved and by doing that, you could also get rewarded, then you're more likely to do that. Now, obviously at this stage, it's probably not a huge pull for the Wealth Journal, let's face it. But imagine if you was, say, Drake. Drake, 15 years ago, as he was just sort of coming through on in the in the sort of music scene, and he released a token, and you had the opportunity to buy Drake tokens to maybe get early access to concert tickets or Drake memorabilia, and you followed him on that journey to where he is now. Just imagine what that token could potentially be worth from from the early days. And you've actually helped play a role in uh, Drake's success and have been rewarded by that. And music as a whole is another another huge, huge potential opportunity. And it could be a, a shift away from centralized apps like Spotify, who only pay the artists maybe a small royalty, to the other way around where the artists retain a huge part of the royalty. So that's uh, another big opportunity. And what really makes a lot of this possible is, of course, the underlying blockchain technology, which allows users to track the ownership of tokens or digital assets on the blockchain without using a central authority. And a lot of these blockchains now, certainly ones that you can build on, use smart contracts, which, from an NFT point of view, enable the original creator to continue to get royalties on secondary and tertiary sales. I think I've mentioned that previously. And smart contracts are basically self-executing contracts written in code. And you're probably thinking, is this the end of Web 2? Well, for me, probably not. I don't think it really is. I think we still require an element of centralization. We still need a customer service department or somebody to speak to when things go wrong for certain industries. And smart contracts can't really take into account extenuating circumstances. Let's say, for example we put everything on smart contracts. So uh, how you deal with your landlord becomes a smart contract, how you rent out a property. If you were to use a smart contract in that situation, so you you pay the landlord, he gives you access to the property and it almost happens automatically. It's like fixed into this contract. But let's say, for example, one month you can't pay because I know you've lost your job or there's been an issue. With a smart contract, that would then effectively mean you cannot access your property. But the landlord might actually be willing to give you a bit of a bit of grace. Okay, I'll I'll take rent maybe next week once you've sorted out your finances, things like that. So in in our real world where there's I guess there's sort of grey areas and potential loopholes, sometimes we a smart contract might not actually be be the best option. So will we see everything shift onto Web three? Maybe not. Maybe not. Who knows? Now from a wealth perspective there'll no doubt be Web3 winners and Web3 losers. I don't know who they are, but like I said, this could be a huge investment opportunity and it's very, very, very early days in my opinion.
The next point in my wealth journal this week is the metaverse. And I've been asked quite a lot of questions around, you know, what is the metaverse? I don't really understand it. Can you cover it on a podcast? So I thought I'd do a little bit more research into the metaverse. In terms of why people are asking, I can only assume that they're probably trying to figure out a little bit like me of what does this mean from a, from a wealth point of view? What is the metaverse opportunity and kind of get involved? And it also feels quite sci-fi-esque. So I imagine there's a little bit of an interest around around that. And I guess we are on the cusp of something something new. In the same way we went from offline to online, people are keen to understand what it is, how they can get involved. So if you look online, there is quite a there's quite a few different examples of the metaverse. And really what I have found is that at this stage, the metaverse doesn't really exist in the way that people maybe think or think it's going to exist. The best way to explain the metaverse at the moment is probably through gaming, that you can go onto like online games and live in this online world. And in some games, there may be a bit more reflect probably what the metaverse might look like in the future. So like take Fortnite, for example, open world games where you can interact with other people. You can buy things there and, and things like that. So that's probably a good example. But really, it, it sort of falls on quite nicely from, from Web 1 to, to Web 3 in the metaverse. Because if you think about um, the metaverse, and this was this was quite recently how Mark Zuckerberg explained his view or plan for the metaverse in their recent... Uh, when when Facebook changed its name to Meta, so he sort of um, he described it in in the three steps, in the sense that we started with the text web, we then moved to photos and videos, which was Web two, and then for Web three or the metaverse, we're moving towards immersive, virtual experiences, and effectively having more of a presence in the online space and actually feeling like you're there, and this for Facebook or Meta. Um, probably feels like a natural evolution. Like, how can they take social media to that next ne- that next level, rather than just consuming it through the screen of of your phone or laptop, but actually going that next step further? And they acquired um, Oculus, the VR virtual reality um, firm, a few years back, and have been working on that. So it feels like the metaverse is moving towards this virtual reality space where you can almost <laughs> enter into the internet. Which, um, yeah does sound a little bit scary. Now, the metaverse term has been around for quite a while. And there is a book by uh, a novel called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which I've, I've recently been reading just to try and understand a little bit more about the metaverse. And of course, this is, um, yeah, it's not a real, not a true story. But it does involve the metaverse. And it was written back in 1992. And it was actually quite, quite accurate, really, from what how he depicts depicts his metaverse in in the novel compared to how Mark Zuckerberg was was talking about the metaverse only a few months back. So in chapter five of of Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson, he details a fairly accurate depiction of what the metaverse might actually turn out to become. So he details that the metaverse will most likely be lived and experienced through virtual reality, so potentially virtual reality headsets, but not exclusively. And there'll, there'll probably be people in the metaverse, so audio-visual bodies called avatars, which will be the vehicles for communication in the metaverse. So I could be sat in Manchester, and the other, tar, the other avatars that I may be interacting with or walking past in the metaverse could be based anywhere on the planet. 
So your avatar will be controlled by you and you can make your avatar look any way you want. And he describes it as if you're ugly, you can make your avatar look beautiful. His words, not mine. Obviously, I think everyone looks beautiful. If in real life you're still wearing your pajamas, but yet your avatar could be looking as cool as. Uh, And in his metaverse, and similar to Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, your avatar could be could be anything. It could be it could be a person. It could be almost like a a a fairly photo accurate version of of you. But it could be a robot. It could be a dragon. Um, He said it could be a giant walking penis if you really wanted it. Imagine. Imagine turning up to a work meeting with the uh, the wrong avatar. Yeah, that'd be interesting. So this idea of the metaverse is to basically improve further our virtual experiences. And like I said, rather than just tapping on a flat screen on your phone, but actually be genuinely involved in this uh, and immersed in this virtual world. And it may be even immersed into real world experiences, but via the web, let's say a concert that you wanted to attend in Brazil, the World Cup final, for example, through virtual reality, through diving into the metaverse, you could actually feel like you're sat on, on front row seats or pitch side. In some ways, the metaverse will probably have to feel like it's a seamless world, which is easy to navigate and move through. So Zuckerberg talked about teleportation in the metaverse so you can just pop up and move around quite freely Uh, and one other key thing he talked about was that in the metaverse we'll potentially all have our own home you know a place that we can call our own in the metaverse Um, and we'll be able to store our our metaverse possessions in there so our digital assets like for example our nfts or our, our outfits we might have nike and adidas trainers in the metaverse that we actually get from nike and adidas and we have in our, our wardrobe at home. So he, he he detailed this term basically saying that the metaverse will have to require some form of interoperability. I don't think I've even said that right. But that essentially means that there's an ability for systems and apps and products from different vendors to operate together in a coordinated way without the user's involvement. So you can transfer your digital assets around around the metaverse. Just because you bought it in one place doesn't mean you can use it or can't use it in another. So your avatars and outfits, for example, could potentially hop around different metaverses. So it does sound, um, it is very much science fiction. And now at the moment, there's a huge amount of like different projects. There's different metaverses getting built. There's different metaverses games and they're allowing like creators to create within metaverses as well, to own land in metaverses, to own certain things. So people are actually now actively investing in, in metaverses which is, which is wild. And I'm, I'm only really scratching the surface of this. Now, in terms from from an investment point of view, how can you play a role in investing in the metaverse? Well, and of course, this isn't financial advice, but you could look to, you know, you could look at companies that are playing a role in building them. So Meta, for example, Microsoft is developing metaverses, some of the underlying technologies from companies like NVIDIA. And then you've also got some of these um, gaming platforms that are building metaverses like Roblox. Um, From a crypto space, there's the Sandbox or Decentraland. And then from a broad market view from the crypto sector, because of the amount of NFTs that are likely to be involved in the metaverses, you could look at Ethereum. Um, So... There are there are opportunities out there, and it's probably best just doing a doing a little bit more research and finding out 
which ones which ones are for you and which ones you think will be the overall potential winners from my side it does sound it does sound bonkers it does sound crazy to think that you could have your own home in the metaverse and the way Mark Zuckerberg explained it is that you could work in the metaverse you could put on your virtual headset and have a meeting with your colleagues in the metaverse a fairly realistic meeting in in the sense that you could all sit around the table and actually look at each other as if you're sat around the table in a boardroom and no doubt the pandemic has probably accelerated uh, the adoption of this in the sense that we we're all happily meeting via zoom or or teams these days and actually having a more immersive experience might be better for for employees um rather than us all moving back to the office maybe maybe this this sort of working from home is here to stay but actually using the metaverse to meet will be will be a much better experience it'll actually feel like you're in the room but you could also have a, a home office in the metaverse where you could sit there and have a, a screen in front of you in the same way that you have a laptop in front of you at home and, and work in the metaverse. The only difference is that your home office in the metaverse could be a corner office in in Manhattan with an amazing view. It could be at the top of a of a mountain where you could see for miles. In your home office, you could have a, a cool sort of stereo system. On the wall is all your various NFT memorabilia. It could be a really cool place to live. And then, you know, you interact you interact with your employees in a, in a completely different way to what you do now remotely, um, which, which for me on the surface sounds, it sounds great. But one thing that does concern me is that if the metaverse does become such a, such a cool place and your home office in the metaverse is way better than your home office in real life, what happens when after... After eight hours in the metaverse, um, meeting your colleagues, and maybe maybe the meeting rooms in the metaverse are in space or under the sea. Um, it gets to it gets to five six o'clock in the evening, and you finally take off your virtual reality headset. It's gone dark outside. It's still it's still cold and miserable, and um, you've spent all that time in a in a wonderful, colourful world of the metaverse. It's um, yeah, I don't know how that would feel. I don't know how that feel. I almost feel a little bit scary. And then you might just decide just to quickly go downstairs, get yourself some some beans on toast, and then get straight back into the metaverse again. <laughs> so I do think it's um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. It did make me think a little bit. I was in London last week, and I was on the tube. Uh, I was stood up on the tube actually in the middle of the. It was quite busy in the middle of the aisle, and. On either side of me, what there was maybe like six people either side. All of them were just looking at the phones, all twelve looking at their phones. So we've we've adopted the phone. We almost like live through our phones. Imagine if we could live in a virtual world. I mean, it's hard enough for us today to put our phones down, but actually being immersed in a metaverse where you could be doing experiences that you couldn't even dream of in real life. What would that be like? What would that be like for us all mentally? Imagine just sat there with your with your partner watching TV in the evening. At the moment, most people, let's face it, you, you sit scroll through your phone. But in a few years, we could just be sat there with our virtual reality headsets on. I'm I'm playing basketball with my friends, and my wife's um, I don't know. She's she's at a concert somewhere. So yeah, 
it's uh it does seem like it could be it could be crazy but who knows who knows how it'll turn out the final point in my wealth journal this week is a term that I came across whilst rereading the four hour work week from from Tim Ferriss if you haven't read that book it's been out quite a while um some of it is a little bit out of date but I was just I saw I just picked it up again recently and was flicking through it but one thing um I came across was a term that he coined dreamlining and basically he asked the reader to think about what would you do if you couldn't fail and he basically said like for the next 90 days what tasks what things would you do if you knew you couldn't fail and maybe even extend that to what does the next year look like for you if you if you could do stuff where you knew you guaranteed you couldn't fail and it did get me thinking it did get me thinking actually like we we do tend to to hold ourselves back a little bit in life and this follows on from from what i mentioned a couple of episodes ago that you've just got to go out there and 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 go for it but yeah what would you do if you knew that you wasn't going to fail i think one thing i was thinking about is that if i knew guaranteed that i wouldn't fail i would be tempted to climb everest <laughs> like I know it sounds crazy, but that's one. It's a it's a challenge that absolutely terrifies me. Climbing Everest, like you know, there's been a there's been accidents on Everest. It's very dangerous, and when you've got a family with young children, to go and climb Everest for me feels pretty selfish. But at the same time, what an achievement to to reach the the highest mountain, the summit of the highest mountain on Earth. It would be incredible. I don't think, well, nothing could really top it, let's face it. But there is there is that risk of failure and failure when trying to climb Everest. All right, potentially you don't reach the summit. But the other form of failure is, let's face it, death. But if you knew you couldn't fail, then, yeah, why not? Why not? But what else in life is there out there that if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you what would you do? So, yeah, bit of homework for you. Have a think. Let's even just say in the next 90 days, what task would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And then give it a go. Give it a go. So that's everything on the Wealth Journal this week. Hope you enjoyed it. We definitely dove deep into a few subjects there and no doubt I only scratched the surface. Let me know what you think of my explanations of Web3 and the metaverse. Um, I'm no doubt there was things that I missed out or didn't cover. I could have gone into more detail in certain areas, but keen to get to get people's thoughts and opinions of that. Um, because yeah, we're all in this, we're all learning this together pretty much at the same time. So reach out as always. Please let people know about the podcast if you found this episode interesting. Tell your friends, and um, yeah, maybe one day I might reward you with a wealth journal token. And who knows, I may even set up jtube <laughs> so um <laughs> i can't even i feel like i can't even say jtube anymore um but honestly thank you for listening and if you could do me a favor this week please wherever you get your podcast whether it's like a, a like or a follow or a subscribe just just hit that button and that really helps me track whether i'm getting new listeners to the podcast so that'd be great thank you very much speak to you next week take care Thank you.